you have a Bible or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the passage with us this morning. We're going to be in 1 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. Um, as you're turning there, we'll be in chapter 2. Um, let me just do just a few seconds of, of recap. Um, this is a letter, right? We know that not all of Scripture is the same genre of literature. Um, so this is a letter that Paul has written to like his son in the faith. So Timothy's not his biological son, but is a close confidant, a fellow minister in the gospel. There's a close father-son-like relationship. Um, and Paul is writing this to Timothy, who is currently in the city of Ephesus, um, overseeing one of the churches there. And he's looking to minister to the church. So it's kind of a public letter and a private letter. So it's addressed to Timothy, but it's for the whole church. And he is setting up um, basically the household of God and, and wanting him to say, look, the church has a unique role to play in the world. And the false teachers that have emerged, we've got to deal with those. and We've got to order some things. And so this letter is written probably somewhere around 62, 63 A.D., Um, It's after the book of Acts was written. Um, Most likely, from what we understand from church history, Paul got out of prison for a while, had two or three, four years of freedom again, was rearrested and put to death by Nero. And so this would have been in the early to mid-60s. So we're going to read all of chapter 2. So we'll start there, and then we'll do a, a little additional introduction. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desired then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right, so chapter 2 of 1 Timothy um, may feel a little disjointed from where it starts to where it ends. Um, It may not feel disjointed to you because you're simply offended at the moment um, because it doesn't come across very politically correct. Um, It may be that you came with some trepidation this morning. It may be that you came with a high level of anticipation at my um, discomfort. Um, But there's a reason that we preach books all the way through. 
Because one, it's far easier to skip a passage like this. Okay? Um, but that doesn't do Scripture justice. Um, it doesn't force us to do the hard work of wrestling with what does the text say. Um, there's another thing. The reason we teach like this is because we need to remember when we see something that kind of leaps off the page and goes, whoa, I want to deal with that, that we can't leave the overall context of the whole book behind. And so remember what Paul is writing to Timothy. What is he doing here? His concern is that the church in the local community would be like this buttress of truth, of light. It would be a foundation where gospel would go out so that Jesus is worshipped, so that there would be a base of mission to the world, so that more people would come to know Jesus and worship him. And so if we, we have to remember the thrust overall is that, that Paul is wanting the church to play its rightful place in a community and in society for the good, the glory, and the worship of King Jesus, right? Like that's the thrust of his book, his letter. And so now he's going to write about specific issues in Ephesus that he wants to begin to clarify. Another kind of key component to this is Paul's near the end of his life. Even if he doesn't know his death is coming by the hands of Nero, he's an older man. The apostles are, are dying off, and he is handing some instructions for when the apostles no longer are, those who walked with Jesus. How are we going to order the church? And so ultimately, chapter 2 is not as disjointed as it maybe initially feels like, because what he's, what he's hitting on is worship in chapter 2. And, and that the ultimate task that we have as Christians is not ministry first, it's worship first. It's to make much of Jesus. Because there will be a day where ministry, where church planning, where, where missions, where preaching, all of those things will fade away in eternity. That we will still worship the one who is worthy, our King. And so worship is of primary concern. But then the goal is if we're worshiping properly, we're then on mission Right, which is actually a form of worship, which then brings in more worshipers because God is worthy of that worship. And so if we're not careful, we want to rip four or five or six verses out of First um, Timothy 2 and say, no, 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 I want to talk about this and this alone. And we remove it from the overall context, which, which then makes it harder for us to understand what is Paul trying to say, what is Paul trying to do here. So let's not get distracted by this. We're going to start um, and work our way through chapter 2. Where he starts then is with prayer. In the first eight verses, the, the focus is, is really on prayer in the church. Listen to what he says. First of all, he gives primacy here to this. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions. Paul just reminds them that we're supposed to be praying for our leaders. Now, I want us to be quickly reminded, Nero was not a believer, okay? There was, at this point in history, no national governmental leader in anywhere in human history at this point that would have been a Christian in a highest position. And yet, Paul is saying, church, when you think about those in authority, whether it's kings or whether it's in lower authorities, in any sort of position you can imagine, pray for them. Pray for them, not because they are Christian or if they aren't Christian. You pray for them whether they are or they aren't. That there's, it's not about whether they're deserving of our prayers. It's that we need to pray for them. And so the question would be, why? He, and he begins to give us this answer. Look at verse 2. 
that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So again, we have to remember the thrust of Timothy, the letter here. He's saying, I want you to pray for your leaders so that life can go as, as smooth and quiet and dignified as possible so that you can live in a way that reflects Jesus. Why? So that God is honored and that more people would know him. Right? And so what's going on in Rome at this point um, and, and has been for a while is the Pax Romana. It's, it's Roman peace. And during Roman peace, because they have controlled much of the world, things have been built like roads. And language has been unified a little bit because Rome had such a wide spread. And so during this time, it is no accident that God sent Jesus then because there was more accessibility to the world than there had ever been up until this point. Because there was typically peace because Rome had an iron fist and controlled things. And due to this peace and the ease of um, communication and the ease of transportation relative to, to history, the gospel was moving forward in a radically quick way. So what Paul is saying is, look, continue to pray for our leaders. Pray that they would not, one, like, stomp us out, but two, that life would be right, ordered and, and there would be society that we can move forward in honoring Jesus and the, the gospel would happen. Because listen, if there is strife and if there is war and if there is hunger and if there is difficulty, much of our energy then begins to go towards those things which takes away from our ability to be on mission as, as, as freely. So he's saying we want to pray that this state would do what the state is supposed to do and allow us to live a quiet and dignified life. He says, I want you not just to pray for them, I want you to pray for all people. Why would he, why would he remind us that we're supposed to pray for all people? Right? Because our, our MO is to assume that certain people get left out. Right? That if we're not careful, our hearts run to those who are most like us. And that we have folks that we have issue with. And some of it may be due to financial reasons. Some of it may be due to education. Some may be due to ethnicity. Some may be due to geographic location, cultural differences, right? Like we find things to say, you're different than me. You're not like me and this isn't for you. And Paul says, no, no, no. The mission is for all. The message is for all. Do not forget anyone. This is for all. Because remember, Jewish background believers were struggling to want the gospel to go to Gentiles. They had to have a huge church meeting in Acts 15 where they determined, okay, the gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's for everyone. Right? Now, Christians suffering under the hand of Nero, so if you want more insight into that, First Peter is written under this, this setting where the government's beginning to crack down. And, right, that, that there would be a temptation to say, hey, you hate me as a Christian, the gospel's not for you. I don't want to go to you. And so what Paul is reminding Timothy and the church at large here is this, is no one gets left out. You don't get to decide who is worthy to hear, to receive, or to respond to the gospel. The gospel is for all of us across all barriers, borders, boundaries, socioeconomic, right? All of those things. The gospel crosses all lines and all barriers. And so we can see the thrust here is church, when you gather, pray for your leaders so that you can do what I've asked you to do. Church, when you gather, pray for those who are not like you, that the gospel would go forth to them and that you would be mindful to be taking the message. 
Because we want you to live, listen to verse 2 again, a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. Look at verse 3. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior. So one, it's worship to live this way. You're continuing to honor God. In verse 4, because God desires all people to be saved and, co- and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so what he's telling us is, look, don't be nationalistic here. Take the gospel out because God wants people to be saved. Um, John writes to, in Revelation and says, there will be a day where we're all around the throne and there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every background worshiping the one true God, the one King So he's like, be a part of the mission to tell people what Jesus has done, that he has rescued us. Because he continues now. He goes, why do we need to be on mission this way? Why do we need this? Verse 5, for there's one God. Right? He's like, so if there's one, then you need to know that one. I need you to know who he is. And not only is there just one God offering salvation, Listen, he says, and there is one mediator between God and men. So he's just reminding them. The message we have is that there is one true God, and there's only one way to get to him, and it's through Jesus. And so even though there's other, other teachings and other thoughts and other, um, other ideas out there, we need people to know there's one God and one way to him, and it's through Jesus. He's our mediator. He's the one that makes things right. And so we continue to see that that Paul is hammering this idea that the church has a task at hand. It's to make much of Jesus and it's to bring others to know him, to have the opportunity to hear and respond to God's call of salvation. We see the gospel in verse beginning in verse five. The man Christ Jesus. He's reminding us, right, that the man came, that Jesus put on flesh. That's the incarnation. That God left heaven and came to rescue us. And so he just quickly lays out some of these big um, temples of the gospel. The man Christ Jesus, who in verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all. Isaiah 53 says it this way. In verse 12, because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Right? That Jesus was a substitute. He was a ransom. He paid the price to mediate peace between us and God. Right? So he says, look, there was a man who came and walked in the flesh, Jesus, who was also God. And he lived the life that we were supposed to. He trusted God. He honored God. He, he did not sin. He did not rebel. He followed everything, every letter of the law perfectly. And as he does this, then he's able to mediate, step in as our substitute in our place, and take the wrath, the judgment of God to pay the price to redeem us. So God is satisfied by his offering. And then he's resurrected so that we are reminded that he is still able to mediate on our behalf. He's still able to intercede on our behalf. Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That Jesus is our atoner, our redeemer, our mediator, our rescuer, our savior. That he has done it. So, 
what is Paul doing here? He's reminding us of the primacy, the, the need for prayer. Are we praying to God, believing that this gospel still saves, that it still redeems? And if we are, then we're praying for those who are far from the gospel. We're praying for those people who seem to be angry and hostile to the gospel. Do we come and gather and ask God in your supernatural way, this isn't just for our sake, but would you save those who right now hate you? Because we were once rebels as well. Do we, do we come to him in this manner? Do we come expecting him to do it? Or has prayer become this kind of rote thing of, well, it's the church service, so we better pray at least once or twice. Or do we really expect God to work and to move and to intervene? Do we ask him to do this? So he continues. Look at verse 8. So he says, so I desire, right, he begins to give some practical things here, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Why would he mention without anger or quarreling? Because he's told us in chapter 1 that there are false teachers who are leading vain discussions and senseless conversations. Right? You have enough vain discussions and senseless conversations, you're going to quarrel and be angry. (laughs) Right? He's saying, like, look, when we come to pray, one of the things that would hinder us would be broken relationships with others, would be anger, but it would also be sin. In Psalm 24, we see this idea of holy hands. This is verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and he does not swear deceitfully. And so we understand that in Scripture, lifting up holy hands was a way of externally showing something that's happened internally. Right? That when we're lifting holy hands, it's not just that our hands are physically clean. It's that we're saying, I can offer my hands to you because my soul is clean. Right? Because I'm walking in a way that's pleasing and obedient to you. And we're able to do that because of Jesus. So he says, look, if you're, if you're walking in sin, you're not going to be quick to throw your hands up because you don't want to be outed. He's like, if you're walking in anger and quarrelsome and in broken relationships, you're not going to be quick to pray because you're not wanting to know what God's going to say or to do or how he's going to deal with you. So he says, so what I want, church, is men, I want you to come and I want you to be able to lift up holy hands wherever you're at in prayer because you are walking in a way that is rightfully trusting and reflecting me. That you have this internal cleanliness that Jesus has provided via the gospel And now you're externally praying, which gives us insight into where he begins to talk about women. Because look at verse 9. He says, likewise. So he's just said, men, you're going to do this thing externally because it's a reference to you internally. Verse 9 for women. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, what the, but what, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, good works. So again, he's saying, women, be careful that your external appearance right, isn't distracting from what's going on in you internally. Because if we look back at verses 2 and 3, what has he told us? I want you to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly. It's good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. 
right? So he's saying like the way that we live externally should rightly reflect what's going on in us internally. And so he's saying, women, if you are looking to draw attention to yourself, right, and that's the focus, then you're distracting from the godliness that you should be living for, that that your good works should be revealing. And so he's talking about a lot of cultural things here right now. Um, And he's, he's talking about, look, if you come in with this ostentatious look, right, making sure that people know that you're wealthy and that you're beautiful and all these things, he's like, they're not thinking about your godliness, They're not looking at you in regards to the the good works that you're producing. They're realizing you're drawing attention to yourself for the sake of the attention that you're gathering. And so he's he's cautioning them on a common right issue to women. He's not saying, right, that we're not allowed to have beauty, that you're not allowed to have jewelry, that you're not allowed to do your hair. He is saying, likewise. The primary concern is what's going on internally. Are you following Jesus? Are you living out good works? Or when people look at you, do they miss those things because they only notice what's going outwardly? Here's how we know that it's not just about beauty. Because you can be one of the more modest people, and that can be the point. That what comes across is not godliness or modesty, but it's religious spirits, right? that I want you to know that look how modest I am and the attention now is again on me and not on my, my faithfulness to Jesus. It's not on the good works that I'm doing that would please him. So what Paul is saying is, look, who is the focus on as you gather? Is it on you and your attention or is it on King Jesus who is worthy of the focus and the attention and the worship? There was a, an issue in Ephesus at the time with wealthy women doing just really ostentatious things. And so he is addressing that because it's beginning to bleed into the church. So he continues um, and, and says, look, I want, I want our focus to be internally. All right. Which now begins to lead us into this last section. Beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read it again. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now listen, if we're honest... Um, you may be absolutely embarrassed by this passage, right? Like that there's, there's a level of discomfort or you're just like, you know, if I could cut this section out, I would because it's so offensive to our, our larger society. Um, and I just, I just want to say like, I've got a godly wife who in, in most areas is like more equipped than I am. And I'm raising a daughter, Right? It's like we have to wrestle with this passage honestly, with integrity, to see why, why is this here? What is Paul doing here? Um, because it does make us uncomfortable, and we should be asking the question, how is this good for women? Right? Like that should be the question we start with. And what I want us to see first and foremost is that what Paul is doing here, this whole argument is rooted in creation. Okay? That he takes this um, very specifically to Adam and Eve. 
And I want you to think for a moment in creation that there are some things that we have now that are broken, but they were created perfect, right, and good. So work is not a, a result of sin. Work was given to Adam in the garden while God was walking in the midst with him, while everything was right and harmonious and perfect, work was given. It was a right and good thing. It was a gift from God. It was not a curse. And that we see that Adam and Eve were in relationship and that it was right and it was good and that they were naked and they were not ashamed. And then in chapter 3, things break when we sin and when we rebel against God that things are changed. And so it's why now, right, Work is not always seen as a blessing. It's not always seen as a gift. In its, in its redeemed right state, it still is. It still is good for our soul. But we know that work has been, um, it's atrophied and it's been corrupted. And so it's the reason that you hate Mondays, right? And that people talk about retirement so much is because sin has affected work. But it doesn't mean that it wasn't created in perfection as a gift, What Paul is saying is, look, Adam was created first. God could have just as easily simultaneously said, and now men and women, right? But he didn't. He created man first. And this is not to get into value. It's not to get into worth. Men and women are created with equal um, value, with worth, both in the image of God. There's no one deserving more or less dignity at all. If those things have occurred at all, it is an effect of the fall that has broken things, that has created this um, disagreement and this, this strife between men and women, right? That would feel like that we're in war culturally because of this. But that, that the first created, the firstborn in Scripture tend to have a responsibility. Listen, it's a responsibility, it's not a right. And so Paul takes us back to creation to say, men, you had a responsibility because you were created first, that God has given you um, some responsibility to lead women, right? Again, this is not to boss, this is not to control, this is not to manipulate, it is to lead, right? It's to lead as we are led by God. But things are corrupted, And the reason Paul is talking about this is he's giving us a quick example of how it's been corrupted. That during the Genesis account, um, the accuser, the um, the tempter, Satan comes to Eve. And most likely the text kind of lets us know that Adam was there. But he interacts with Eve. Eve eats of the fruit and gives to her husband. And so he says, look, when we don't follow the God-given order that I've created that was right and purposeful and with intent, we are more prone and vulnerable to sin, right? So he's saying, look, sin came in when the natural order here was thwarted. He is not saying that women are more susceptible to things, right? He's just saying in that case, that's what happened. Because he, otherwise he would say, women, you can't teach anyone anywhere at any time. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, I've given a God-created, God-mandated rooted in creation the way it was meant to be, that men were to be responsible for leading women in a God-honoring way. And in the fall, it was subverted. Look, and so here's what it looks like now. Men, for the most part, you fight on one end of the, the spectrum or not. You're either super passive 
and you shirk your responsibility, which is what Adam did. Or we grab it with an iron fist and we look to control and to manipulate and to own. And, and the really broken stage is when we do both. When we're actually actively passive, except with our words, we're violent. And we try to control. Right? Like that, that we were meant to lead in a way that would honor God, that would look like God, that would rightly reflect God. And instead what we've done is we've broken it. And we haven't done those things And so abuse happens, and manipulation happens, and control happens. And so when we make jokes about submission, they're not funny. It's not. Because, church, everyone in this room is called to submit. We are all under submission to something, or you're an out-and-out rebellion, which doesn't rob you of the opportunity to submit. Look, our children, we ask them to submit to us, and we're not saying we're better than them but that we've been given a God-given role, a responsibility to shepherd them. And there will be a day where, that, where they'll kind of step out from underneath that a little bit when they're adults, right? We are called to submit to the government as long as they're not calling us to sin. We are called to submit to Jesus, who is a right and good leader over us. Jesus submitted to the Father, right, in our rescue, And so submission is not a bad word. It has been construed that way in society because we have done such a poor job, right? And and men, we're sinners, and we haven't done it well. And so when we make jokes about submit, woman, right, that's what culture hears. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, follow me. I'm going to take you to the Father, and, he, and we're safe with him, and we are secure with him, and we are better because of him. And so that when even women of ill repute come and, and sit at Jesus' feet, he's not lusting after them. He's loving them. We're seeing a man who you can submit to, living out what Genesis 1 and 2 had called us to do, except we are tainted with sin in Genesis 3, and Jesus wasn't. So Paul is saying, look, Here's what I want you to do. In worship, right, because I, don't want, I, I want there to be order. Because I want the church to be healthy and I want the gospel to go forth. That men are called to lead. It's a responsibility in the home and in the church. And that, that's it, right? In the home and in the church. And it's not lording, it's, it's leading, It's not about competency. It's not about value. It's not about worth, but it's about role. Here's how we know this, because in chapter 3, this conversation will continue as we talk about church elders, and he begins to give some character qualifications. He doesn't say, whoever does the job best, that's who you want to lead. He says, whoever has this character is who you want to lead, because we know we can put up a man who has no character who might get the job done and it will crush everyone underneath them. So it's not about who gets the job done. It's about what the God-given role is. And so, listen, here's, here's where we need to go now. Not in every area of life or not in every type of teaching is Paul addressing women. Because if we turn to Acts 18.26, we see Priscilla and Aquila 
So Barnabas, or sorry, Apollos, um, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla, a woman, and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, that, that women are, are talked about praying and prophesying in the church service, right? With some responsibility. And then in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, right? Or sorry, in 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy who was taught by his mother and his grandmother. So what Paul is doing here is he is not saying, women, you cannot teach, period, end of sentence. But he's giving a, a certain proximity, a certain place where, I, where this is not going to happen. One area in church, ultimate authority leadership. One area. Listen, if we're not careful, we turn this passage into another Garden of Eden. Right? Where God says, look at all that you have to flourish. Look at all that you have to enjoy, but don't eat of this one. And we're like, why would you, why would you restrict me? And what happens but sin and rebellion and brokenness enter the world because we don't follow God. If we're not careful, we look at this passage where, where Paul says, in one area of the church, in ultimate preaching authority leadership, women, that is a role for men. And in the home, men, you lead your family as Jesus would have led them. Right? And we say, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to say that's right? Look at this one, and we focus in on the one rather than the, do you notice what he doesn't say? Anything else. Right? There's a reason that women are on the stage praying. The women are on the stage singing. Right? There's a reason that the women are teaching children right now. Right? There's a reason that women are going with our kids to camp this week. And it's not because it's a job for women. It's because they're gifted. And God has given us a call to ministry. Because remember the thrust of 1 Timothy 2. That God is worthy of worship and there is ministry to be done. And so he says, women, there's one area because of creation, because of the way I ordered things, because I created men first and then women, that, I, that you are going to take right a seat behind men as they're leading in one area. And otherwise, it's, it's open for you to make much of Jesus and, and to serve and to love. Now listen, through history, we have botched this horrifically. Right, and there has been abuse and manipulation, and, and we've said things like that means that women can't lead outside the home, and that means that women can't be bosses, and that means that women can't be government officials. Paul's not saying that. He's not going there at all because there are women who are high end, high capacity leaders in every segment of the world. Yes, good and right, we should celebrate that. But he's saying in the church trust what God has done in creation, even though it has been affected by sin and broken by the fall. That he is not forbidding other type of ministry. And so we'll continue that in chapter 3 as we look at elders and then deacons and what roles men and women have in this regard. Listen, we cannot begin to say everything we need to say this morning on this um, and I think it is, it's key to be reminded that this is not a primary issue. Salvation is not at stake this morning. If you are going, ah, I'm not sure. It, right? Salvation is staked on Jesus. These are secondary and tertiary issues where there is believers who disagree on this. 
okay? And look, there's, we can talk about the ramifications if we disagree, right? But this is not a salvific, well, I can't come to this church anymore issue. So we have then a final bizarre phrase. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So if you read this at first glance, it seems like that, that what Paul is saying is um, women are more easily deceived and you need to go home and have babies. Right? And, and, and to some degree, it is what the church has taught. Right? Inappropriately so. That he gave an example where the woman was deceived, but it wasn't that she, women are more likely deceived because men are deceived by false teachers as well every day. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. So here's, here's what's going on. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes that, hey, so as we live our lives, if, if we're honoring God, if we're trusting God, if our internal matches our external, he's like, there's going to be a day where you're going to stand before Jesus and you're going to walk through a door of refinement and you're going to have all of this stuff to show him and you're going to be able to lay it down as worship because you trusted him and you had a life that followed and, and honored him. But then he says this, that for some of you, you're going to walk through that door of refinement, of fire, and everything in your life is going to get burned up. But you're going to still have your salvation as one who walked, listen, through fire. Through fire. Like that you were almost burned up, but all you got was your salvation. Right? What he is saying here is not that you are saved by childbearing. He's going to say you're saved even though you have to give birth to children. Right, that through suffering, through pain, because remember what was the curse in Genesis 3? Work is going to be hard men and women. Childbearing is going to be painful. And through most of human history, childbearing has been one of the most atrocious, horrific things for women because of lack of hygiene or lack of medicine. Women have died. They've been maimed. Right, like until the last hundred or so years, it was a high-risk thing. And so he's saying, even though part of the curse was that you're going to have to bear children yourself. And so listen, when you're giving birth and it's painful and it's agonizing, and right? It's a reminder that we are sinners. That pain entered because we have rebelled against God and this is a part of it. And you are very aware of it in those moments. So he's not saying, so once that baby comes, whew, you're saved. He's saying salvation is offered even though childbirth is difficult and it's hard and it's painful. You're not saved by it. You'll be saved even despite it. Because what does he say? If you continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control, the curse and the pain reminder of our situation, but it doesn't have the final say Jesus does. Jesus says that despite the effects of the curse that, that turned us away from God, that made us a gap that we could not cross to get back to him, Jesus steps in born of a woman through childbirth we are saved that he walked then the life we were meant to live honored God with a sacrificial redemption death on our behalf as our substitutes and then beat sin, Satan and death and lives today to say that when work is horrible it's an effect of the fall and it won't be all that way always I'll restore it and when childbirth is horrific or there's a lack or whatever effect of the curse of sin that there is, he's like, I'll save you still. 
I'll restore you still, that that doesn't have the final say, I do, and I'm making all things right, and I'm making all things new in my resurrection, in my return, in my restoration. So church, this passage, right, that feels so initially offensive is Paul saying, hey, let's, let's live the created order. So women, will you submit to men as men submit to Jesus? So men, you better see it as a responsibility, not as a right. And then men, you teach with authority when the, when the church is gathered. Women, you minister in every other capacity there is. Trust God that this is good and that he is good. And know that when you are reminded of our failings, of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, of our, our current state, that Jesus has brought salvation in this world and our circumstances don't get the final say Jesus does. The salvation is his, and he has given it. And thus, church, take it to the world, to all people, in all places, because Jesus is worthy. Listen, if you've got questions, let's talk, okay? There's, there's so much more we could do with this. We're going to stop here this morning. We're able, even though we've ran through this fast, most of chapter 2 is going to be hit on in other places in Timothy, so we can continue these conversations. Um, Please know that we don't put periods at the end of sermons, right? We continue this as we live life together, church. Um, Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can wrestle with hard passages that feel offensive, that feel culturally removed. And Lord, that there is still meat, there is still goodness, it still reveals to us your faithfulness and mercy. So Father, would we wrestle with these passages? Would we see if this makes sense, if, if, it, if it's clarifying? But God, ultimately, would we be reminded that the circumstances of our life and the effects of our rebellion and our sin do not get the final say because of you. That we have hope and peace and salvation because of you. And so would you speak to your church this morning and would we honor you with our worship, which is both the songs that we sing and the lives that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.